Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where this broadcast may find you. And welcome back to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I am Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism and host of Hoover's Area 45 podcast and our Goodfellows broadcast that airs on Wednesdays. And I'm filling in today for Hoover's director, Tom Gilligan. For more than a century now, the Hoover Institution's mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here in America and around the globe. Since the COVID-19 pandemic arrived on our shores and resulted in a nationwide shutdown, we've been hosting these virtual policy briefings to give you the opportunity to hear directly from some of our nation's most distinguished scholars. Our discussion this morning will focus on the politics of the World Health Organization, better known as the WHO, which has come under considerable scrutiny due to its handling of the current health crisis. Thanks for joining us. But before we start, a quick reminder, we will be taking audience questions as we get deeper into the conversation. You can submit yours by going to the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Just click on Q&A, type away, and we'll do our best to get your question into the queue. Now then, on with the discussion. Today's briefing uh, comes from Lanhee Chen, who is the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies here at the Hoover Institution. Lanhee is also the Director of Domestic Policy Studies in the Public Policy Program at Stanford. In 2012, Lanhee Chen was Policy Director for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. He advised Florida Senator Marco Rubio when he ran in 2016. Prior to all of that, Lon, he served as a senior appointee at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services during the George W. Bush administration. Lon, he, welcome back to the briefing. Thank you, Bill. Okay, I'm going to begin by expressing some disappointment. I was expecting the pitter-patter of little feet. No, I was expecting mayhem in your house. You're the proud papa of very young kids, but it is eerily quiet right now in the house of Chen. What have you done to them? We've got, we've, we've got them stashed away in a place where they may only make one or two appearances during the course of the next hour. I think this is a great question because so many people out there are trying to balance daycare with uh, day jobs. Uh, how have you struck the balance? Well, you know, it's, it's tough because you've got a lot of things going on at home, but, uh, but fortunately they get some good interaction with their teachers and friends online uh, and, you know, you do the best you can. Very good. Okay, let's get into the discussion, Lonnie. Let's talk about the World Health Organization. Uh, this much I know about the WHO. This week, uh, they held its annual World Health Assembly. Uh, they did so virtually for obvious reasons. Uh, Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping spoke to the forum, at which time he promised about $2 billion in aid over the next two years to fight the coronavirus. Uh, there also seemed to be a little political twist here. Lanhe, some of that money goes into third world countries, Africa in particular, and the head of the WHO is from Ethiopia. So uh, Xi was being very clever, I think. Uh, President Trump did not speak to the group. However, he did send a letter, a very pointed four-page letter, in which uh, in classic uh, Frank Costanza <laughs> uh, terms said, I have a lot of problems with you people. Uh, he laid out his concerns about the WHO being in the tank for China, if you will. Uh, and then he did two things that letter long. He Number one, he said that he is fully prepared to pull funding if necessary, uh, taking out the U.S.'s kick to the operation. Uh, secondly, Lon, he called on the WHO to commit to what he termed, quote, substantive improvements within the next 30 days. So give them a very short window to change, but said he wants something substantive. So this raises a lot of questions. Um, what 
are substantive improvements for the WHO. What exactly does the president want? Is the president correct here? What is China's president up to with the $2 billion kick? But let's begin. This is a simple question. This is a time when 200 countries around the world should be on the same page fighting a pandemic. How do we arrive at this point where the U.S. government, the Chinese government, the WHO are involved in this very complicated game of brinksmanship? Well, uh, thank you for the conversation today. I, I do think that it's, uh, it is a good question, which is why is it that the WHO is the source of, uh, of so much controversy when really if you look at the history of the WHO, it's done many laudable things in terms of fighting uh, some of humankind's worst diseases. It's been on the front lines, for example, in the fight against polio. Uh, it, it's been uh, uh, very effective in response to certain uh, outbreaks in the past when we had the severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS that was going through Asia uh, back in the early 2000s, the WHO sounded the alarm very effectively. Uh, but over the last few years, the WHO has been a troubled organization. Uh, it's been troubled for a number of reasons, some of which are bureaucratic, some of which go to uh, a mandate that has crept into a number of subject areas that arguably have very little to do with global public health. But most importantly, Bill, it has uh, been under the leadership of people who uh, fundamentally, I think, have done a poor job. And it, this is not the first pandemic the WHO has struggled with. When Ebola struck West Africa in 2014, 2015, the WHO under different leadership was slow to respond. Uh, when we dealt with a uh, influenza pandemic, the WHO was too quick to the trigger. And this time with respect to uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19, uh, the WHO has, uh, has made a number of mistakes, and unfortunately, those mistakes happened early on at a time when the global community, including here in the United States, could have been better prepared. Mm -hmm. uh, the WHO is not solely responsible for national responses. Uh, obviously, national policymakers each have to, to take responsibility, in some cases here in the U.S., state policymakers as well. But the WHO does play a significant role in global response, and it is seen as a trusted arbiter of information on the virus. And for those reasons, the WHO's missteps are even more significant and even more substantial. In terms of what the Trump administration has wanted to do here, uh, I think they've been absolutely right to shine a light on the WHO's failings. I think they are right to ask the questions that they've asked, and they're right to seek fundamental reform. Uh, I've not met a serious a thinker or scholar or analyst in this area who doesn't believe the WHO is in need of reform. Now, there is disagreement about whether President Trump is going about it in the right way. I happen to think he is. Uh, but, but a number of people uh, who follow this and who look at it believe the WHO is desperately in need of reform. And that reform goes to uh, organizational questions. I mentioned earlier about uh, the, the subject matter creep that the WHO has been increasingly involved in mandates that do not directly relate arguably to its core mission, which is to improve global public health. And in cases of public health emergency like this one, uh, to, to help provide information and to be a trusted source of knowledge. The WHO has bureaucratic 
bureaucratic challenges that arise from its own organizational failures in terms of the arbitration of power between regional parts of the WHO and the central leadership of the WHO. And then there's a leadership problem as well, which is that the current leader of the WHO, a man by the name of Dr. Tedros, Tedros is his first name. He prefers colloquially to be referred to that way. So we'll call him Dr. Tedros during our time together today. Uh, Dr. Tedros has been uh, uh, dogged by a number of controversies, a lack of transparency in decision-making, and of course, most recently, allegations that he is too close to China, and in particular, too close to uh, Xi Jinping, the, the leader of China, in such a way that the WHO has been willing to traffic in mistruths uh, and in, uh, in misleading comments that were made early on, arguably, by, uh, by the Chinese Communist Party regarding the, the early spread and origins of the coronavirus. So that in a nutshell, I think, is why President Trump is doing what he's doing, why there is controversy about the organization, and why reform is desperately needed. Essentially, if you go back and you read uh, the news accounts of the time when Ted Rose is uh, named the head of the WHO law, and he, uh, it's very much like political coverage in the US. There's a lot of identity politics involved here that is all hail the choice of the first WHO president from the continent of Africa. Uh, so it would seem that he was heralded with great promise, but how did he go off the rails? Well, Tedros, um, Tedros is the first African to lead the WHO and was able to, uh, to gain the support of uh, many WHO member nations in Asia and in Africa, largely through the help and influence of China. Uh, China has been a significant player on the international stage and international organizations. They have pursued their national interest through influencing leadership of international organizations like the WHO. Um, Tedros ran against a, a British doctor uh, a few years ago uh, who was supported actually by the United States and by other countries uh, mm -hmm. in, in, uh, who are like-minded with the United States. And it was a very... Um, difficult election campaign, a lot like an election campaign you might see for, for public office here in the U.S. in the sense that um, there were a number of allegations made about Tedros, um, some of which I think are probably true. For example, when right. he was foreign minister and previously health minister of Ethiopia, the accusation came that he had covered up a number of cholera outbreaks. Uh, this was something that that was a bombshell that was delivered toward the end of the of the campaign for director general of the WHO when that election last happened. Uh, Tedros denied it, of course, but really the core of it was this battle between a candidate who was supported by the United States and its allied countries and a candidate who was supported largely by China, the US didn't lean in very hard at the time, quite frankly, uh, not as hard as it could have. And so we ended up with Tedros. And, and so I think a lot of people have said, well, you know, it's unfortunate because Tedros has led the organization, I think, in a way that, um, that, that has not been admirable. Uh, he has led with opacity rather than transparency. Um, he has made some questionable decisions. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, he picked the president of Zimbabwe, the former president who's now actually dead, the former president of Zimbabwe, as the ambassador to deal with, uh, with, with a set of uh, issues in Africa relating to infectious diseases. Um, mm -hmm. This was a leader, a, the former president of Zimbabwe, who was criticized for uh, being anti-human rights, for being right. a murderous dictator. And then to appoint him to such an exalted position at the WHO, 
was a was a was a significant problem. And so uh, he's made some questionable decisions. He's been very cozy with Xi and with China, and he's also been relatively opaque in some of the decisions he's made. So so there's reason to believe that uh, that that Tedros may not be the right guy for the job going forward. And take us inside the politics of the WHO, Lonhi, should there be a time when it wants to address reforms? In this regard, uh, here in America, we're used to left versus right, red state versus blue state, and so forth. But how do the coalitions work within the WHO? Is it as simple as developed versus developing, or is it now U.S. versus China? Yeah, I I think it's become a lot more bipolar uh, in the last few years, certainly as China has sought to exert more influence over the organization. Uh, in Tedros's case, as I, as I noted earlier, he had the support of African countries, he had the support of a number of Asian countries. Um, but I don't think it's as simple as saying, you know, it's this block against that block. I think that the reality is this pandemic has animated the fact that the WHO uh, is in need of reform. And indeed, if you look at the meeting the WHO concluded this week, they had an annual meeting of the policymaking arm of the WHO known as the World Health Assembly. In that meeting, the WHO member countries approved a resolution that called for an investigation into right. the origins of the pandemic. Now, note, the, the, the investigation that was authorized did not mention China at all. And furthermore, it's to be conducted internally by the WHO. Uh, I think if an investigation is to happen, that investigation should be conducted independently. It should be conducted free from influence from any member country, including China, certainly. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think there's a big question about how effective the WHO can be in the midst of a pandemic if we have to question the motives or the motivations of those who lead the organization. So I think for those reasons, the call for an investigation, the call and the, the pressing that we've seen from the Trump administration, uh, I think now is the right time to do that. I, I, I question those who think it can wait because um, the WHO continues to be a resource as this pandemic goes on. Don't we want to have comfort? The WHO is right. giving us information that is trustworthy, and we can't do that without first getting to the bottom of this. Yeah. Now, Trump's threat to uh, to pull the funding, I think the U.S. Uh, kicked in something like about $550 million last year, Lonnie, to a $6 billion budget. Uh, you've written about this. I think you've written in particular about overhead at the uh, WHO, a lot of sort of frivolous expenses, if you will. Uh, but do you think he's serious about doing this? And if he did take it away, if he took away 10% of the budget or so, how would the WHO operate? Um, I, I think the president probably is quite serious about it. I think he's disappointed from, from everything I can tell. He's disappointed in how the WHO has responded in this situation. But, but look, let's talk about the funding model for a minute, because I do think this right. is important. The vast majority of the contributions that are made to the WHO come in the form of voluntary contributions. A small percentage are assessed fees, essentially a membership fee you pay for being part of the organization, which the U.S. and other, other countries pay uh, in accordance with their ability to pay. The voluntary contributions is where the vast majority, you, know, you hear these numbers tossed around $400 million a year, $500 million a year. The vast majority of what the U.S. gives to the WHO is a voluntary contribution. Uh, 
And right. we usually do it to earmark it to very specific causes. We want to fight polio. We want to deal with cholera. We want to improve sanitation around the world, et cetera. Um, interestingly enough, the second largest donor to the WHO is not a country. It's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Right. Uh, there are other nonprofits that have also kicked in money. There are also uh, independent uh, companies, private uh, not, uh, for-profit companies that are in the pharmaceutical industry, for example. They've kicked in money. Um, not to criticize anybody at all who wants to give money to the WHO. People are free to give to the causes that they want to give to. And indeed, there are some very worthy things the WHO is doing. Right. I simply raise that uh, issue to, to, to let you know that uh, it's not as simple as saying, well, if the U.S. cuts off funding, there goes a, a, a big stream of money. Um, right. Let's look at facts for a minute. First of all, the U.S. Con the, the WHO uh, spending on pandemic response is a very small percentage of what the WHO spends overall. And the US, by the way, has already funded its share of response to COVID-19 specifically. Right. Beyond that though, there are a number of different programs where the US is contributing, where it could decide, you know what, this program may be worthwhile, we're gonna continue. This program may not be, we're gonna cut off funding there. So it's not necessarily an all or nothing proposition either. Right. Uh, furthermore, as I indicated, there are a number of different sources where additional funding could come from. The Gates mm -hmm. Foundation, for example, could decide, and I think it already has decided to up its contribution. Uh, right. Others who believe in the, in the mission of the organization could, could up their contributions as well. So it's a little bit more complicated than saying, well, if the U.S. cuts off funding and cuts it off, uh, you know, it's going to cut it off entirely and or that's going to be at the end of the organization. I think, I think we've got to take a little bit more critical look than that. Right. So this is not analogous to Trump going to Germany and saying, look, you don't give enough money to NATO. You need to chip in more money here, pull your own weight. Uh, he wants reform. But the question line here is, what exactly does he want in the way of reform? And let me throw this at you. If you were tasked with putting together the U.S. approach to this, how would you structure that reform group? Who would you put in the committee? And how would you go about getting this done? Because you're ultimately dealing with a Chinese government that is not fond of transparency. Well, so I think the first thing that has to happen is I do think this independent investigation into the origins of the coronavirus has to happen because it, it does speak to the organization and its management during a pandemic. It speaks to what the organization does and has done previously. And I think we do need to understand the extent to which the organization's um, early actions and continuing actions have been driven out of a desire to satisfy a member country, namely China, as opposed to trying to take a more critical look at disseminating accurate and timely information about, about the virus. Uh, you know, German intelligence sources reportedly uh, have assessed that there may have been a very early call between President Xi and Director General Tedros, where she tried to lean on Tedros to delay uh, disclosing that the virus could be transmitted between humans, if that assessment is indeed borne out, that, that's a significant problem. So I do think the first step to reform is figuring out exactly where the institutional rot may go to, how far into the chain it goes, um, who else in uh, Tedros's line of leadership may have been implicated in any potential early um, malfeasance around this. I think those are all really important questions to figure out. But then beyond that, organizationally, um, I, I do think there needs to be some attention paid to, for example, questions around why it is that the organization continues to exclude Taiwan, which has had a very effective response to the coronavirus, was a very early 
inquisitor, if you will. They asked questions very early on about whether the virus could be transmitted between humans, why they continue to be excluded from not just the World Health Assembly meeting, but more importantly, the technical committee meetings, many of them, which right. are, are convened to help assess and decide response, the actual boots on the ground, if you will, response to this thing. Why has Taiwan been excluded? As far as it appears from the outside world, it looks a lot like politics being prioritized over public health. And I think right. that kind of institutional reform is important. And the last thing I'll mention is this. I think we've got enough evidence now about Tedros to know that we probably don't want him to continue to lead the organization in the long run. Mm -hmm. So I do think the U.S. needs to make very clear that it intends to be involved in the next election for the next director general of the WHO, which will happen in 2022. And we need to take a very serious look at how we are going to be involved in that election. Because arguably in the past, we have not been involved enough in international organizations and looking at the leadership of them. The Trump administration actually has appointed a special envoy focused on uh, trying to determine if there is malign influence from China and from other countries in the leadership of these uh, international organizations. And so I think that's an important step in terms of us going forward and trying to, trying to reform the organization. That's interesting. So uh, Trump could make conditions, Lon. He one condition could be Tetros has to go if he wants your money. Another condition could be you have to hold an election and put this guy up for a vote if he wants your money. He could also put Taiwan into the mix and say that Taiwan gets to participate in the WHO if he wants your money. And let's talk about Taiwan for a minute. Uh, from 20, uh, 2009 to 2016, Lon He, uh, they were allowed to participate in the WHO. I think the title they used was Chinese Taipei. Mm -hmm. uh, but since they're not a UN member, they cannot belong, so they have to be invited. But then in 2016, they were disinvited and have been disinvited ever since. What happened in 2016? Uh, well, in 2016, Taiwan had a presidential election, and they selected a woman named Tsai Ing-wen, who actually was just reelected to a second term this January and inaugurated a, a few days ago for her second term. And, and she comes from the political party in Taiwan that historically has favored, uh, has favored independence for Taiwan from, from, uh, uh, as an independent country. And, and the perception is that she desires to be less close to the mainland than her predecessor, a uh, man by the name of Ma Ying-jeou, was to, to China. And so some viewed it as retaliatory that China essentially said, well, if you're going to elect someone who, uh, who will not be as close to, uh, to us, then we are also going to bar your, your, uh, your society from participating at the WHO. So Taiwan had so-called observer status in the World Health Assembly Right. Uh, for the period of time you mentioned. Uh, not unusual, by the way, for so-called non-state actors to have the observer status uh, at, at the WHO. And so Taiwan had it for many years. It was cut off in 2016. It's been cut off ever since then. But as I mentioned, not only participation in that one annual meeting, but also Taiwan has documented over 100 instances of where it's been blocked from cooperating or participating fully in, uh, in advisory committee meetings where the WHO makes decisions about public health response. Right. So right. Um, the, the reason fundamentally why China does not want Taiwan to participate is because China's view is that Taiwan is a renegade province. Right. And there's no reason for a renegade province to be participating when its interests are perfectly reflected by the mother country, if you will. Taiwan right. obviously disputes that point of view right. and desires to have its own participation in the organization. Right. This is the one China policy. Uh, on that note, Susan uh, asked you the following question, Lon He. Do you think that the WHO ignored the warning China, uh, Taiwan gave regarding the virus due to China? 
Um, I, I think there's strong evidence to suggest that WHO uh, ignored or uh, the most charitable uh, interpretation would be they didn't take it seriously. The WHO makes two claims in this regard. First of all, they argue that Taiwan never said anything about person-to-person transmission of the disease. Uh, Taiwan, the CDC director in Taiwan has publicly released the email he sent to the WHO. Uh, it raises concerns regarding the need for isolation protocols and their, uh, the, the, the Taiwanese contention, which seems plausible to me, is why would you uh, ask about isolation protocols if the disease could not be passed from human to human? Uh, and so they, uh, the WHO claims both that the email did not say anything about human to human, but also further that they did just sort of pass it on. Um, it seems to me that in, in this case, the WHO is covering, uh, that it neither took Taiwan seriously uh, nor did it uh, seriously investigate this issue. And one has to ask the question, well, why didn't they do so? There's really only one plausible answer, which is that China, which has exerted significant influence of the WHO, did not want them to be doing it independently, uh, did not want them to be disseminating that information, did not want that to be getting out at a point where uh, China didn't feel comfortable with it. And I, and I do think that, indeed, they were a huge influence in the WHO's actions in that case. Right. And again, into my previous question about Trump and options here, uh, we do have a question from Lewis. Uh, do you anticipate that President Trump will follow through with his threat to reduce or even cancel funding of the WHO? Let's talk about the lot here, but let's also talk about what other options he has with Taiwan in terms of further recognizing the country, actually meeting with the leader, going to the island, having the president come to Washington and so forth. But how do you see this playing out? Uh, I, I think the president, from everything I, I've seen, uh, is quite serious about dealing with the WHO and, and trying to use the U.S. money that we send to the WHO as leverage for, for reform. Uh, so I, I, I would fully expect him to carry out at least part of what he said he's going to carry out, which is some decline in funding, some fund, extended funding freeze, or in some cases, the revocation of, of U.S. spending uh, on the WHO. So I, I do think he, he takes it very seriously. Uh, some Democrats in Congress have argued that he doesn't have the power to do that. Um, this goes back to a longstanding dispute between the administration and Congress regarding um, whether the president is, is indeed obligated to, to spend the money in the way that Congress has, uh, has, appropriate, has authorized and appropriated. Uh, right. So that, that's a different question. But in terms of, um, of Taiwan, look, there are a number of things the U.S. could do. So let's just start from the baseline that the U.S. recently passed with bipartisan support in Congress and President Trump signed a piece of legislation called the Taipei Act, which is a, an acronym that stands for longer bill title. The basic point of the bill, um, as I understand it, is twofold. One is to promote Taiwan's participation in international organizations like the WHO. And the right. second is for the U.S. to continue to push for broader acceptance uh, and, and ties with Taiwan around the world and to, to report the administration to report to Congress each year on what it's doing to promote those ties and to promote Taiwan's standing in the world. So I think those goals are important because they set up an architecture for greater exchange between the U.S. and Taiwan. That could be more senior level officials visiting Taiwan or more senior officials from Taiwan visiting the U.S., which has been verboten to date, um, more engagement directly potentially up to and including potentially allowing the president of Taiwan to visit the U.S. more fully. Uh, generally, what has happened in the past is when the president of Taiwan has visited the United States, it's been in the context of a so-called transit stop on right. the way to somewhere else. 
the U.S. could extend a fuller invitation uh, up to and including uh, addressing some part of the Congress where Taiwan experiences significant support from Democrats and Republicans. So there's any number of different things. But, but the broader issue to keep in mind is this is a huge sticking point for Beijing. Um, right. China will not uh, let any of this go lightly. They will not simply say, oh, you know, you're increasing your exchanges with Taiwan. We see that the president of Taiwan is going to visit the U.S. Oh, well, this is going to be very upsetting to Beijing, and Beijing will make its uh, protests known to the U.S. and to the rest of the world. So it's something to keep in mind that there is a broader dynamic here than simply saying, well, it's easy. Why don't right. we just do more with Taiwan? I think there's very good reason for the U.S. to stand with Taiwan, but that will not come without, uh, without some cost as well. Right. Stephen has a related question. Uh, he asks, is this the right time for the Trump administration to incorporate Taiwan into the WHO issue since Taiwan is the hot button issue in China? And that raises the question, Lon He, where, where does one China fit into China's priorities? Is, is that at the top of the list? Uh, because this is a country that also is very active globally. It is building around the world. It's, it's uh, obviously expanding its military. How important is, is getting that province back to China? Well, there, there's any number of different uh, issues that are, that are extremely sensitive to Beijing. Uh, Taiwan is at or near the top of the list. It is a, it, they view it as a matter of national sovereignty. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and you can imagine from the American perspective, if someone questioned the sovereignty of, 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 of an asset that we believed was rightfully ours, we would, we would protest as well. Now, there are reasons to disagree with that interpretation. There are reasons to, uh, to, to believe that Taiwan has been an independent society for some time. But certainly for, for China, for Beijing, this is a big issue. This is a big right. deal. This is uh, you know, up there with anything else. Arguably, um, if the U.S. were going to pick a series of issues on which to poke China with, uh, Taiwan would be at the top of the list. Uh, you know, we could talk about human rights. We can talk about freedom of the press. We can talk about all these other things. Um, but Taiwan, I think, is a relatively existential issue. Um, in, in, in terms of, um, of the longer run uh, problem here, I, I, I do think that um, the WHO Taiwan China story is interrelated. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to separate it out because in some ways, how the WHO has treated Taiwan in the course of the current pandemic. And by the way, Taiwan's response to the pandemic has been exemplary. Mm -hmm. The number of cases, the number of deaths, the way that they've employed contact tracing, testing and isolation protocols has been magnificent. And their model um, should be a model that the world looks at. Uh, they are transparent in talking about what they do and talking about what happens there. So, I mean, those are all good things. Why the WHO would not want that expertise at the table as they figure out how to respond to the pandemic is puzzling at best and malpractice uh, probably more likely is the better word. For the WHO to not want them at the table raises questions, well, why not? And then all of the roads lead back to China and the desire to prioritize politics over public health. So it's hard to take the Taiwan piece out of it. I, I understand the question, and I think it's well-placed. I just don't think it's realistic given the circumstances. Okay, since we're talking about the politics of the World Health Organization, Lon He, let's talk about the politics of the United States for a minute. Uh, in case we've forgotten, there is an election going on this November. Oh, there is. 
Yes, and there will at some point there will be a Joe Biden signing. He will come out of the basement in Wilmington, Delaware. He'll be back on the trail. Uh, I'm not sure what the campaign is going to look like in the age of social distancing, but he's going to have to face this issue, Lonhee, and I think he is kind of in between a rock and a hard place in this regard. His campaign put out an ad in late April. I'm going to read you some of the text from it. He The ad said, quote, this is Joe Biden speaking, I would be on the phone with China and making it clear we are going to we're going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. Tough talk from Joe Biden, who tends not to talk very tough on these things. Alon, he immediately got slammed by the left. The ACLU accused him of fear-mongering, uh, said this kind of talk can lead to harm against Asian Americans. Here's the bind, I think, for Joe Biden. I'd like your thoughts on this. If he tries to out-Trump Trump by being tougher than Trump on the WHO, uh, that just doesn't seem to pass the sincerity credibility test. On the other hand, if he tries to take a softer line than Trump, uh, given that he is a man who's been in Washington, D.C. for the better part of five decades now, he looks like more of the problem than the solution. So you have been on presidential campaigns. You have had to uh, lead your candidates through complicated times. How How does Joe Biden navigate this one? Yeah, I, I think this is one of those issues, Bill, where, where Joe Biden is going to have a tough time out trumping Trump on, mm-hmm. on, on China. Uh, I, I think he is going to have to recognize that he's got a long history with, with China. He, is, he right. has taken a set of positions, which, by the way, are very consistent with how much of the foreign policy establishment, center right and center left, has thought about China for many years. And right. he's on the record repeatedly reaffirming that position uh, I think it's going to be tough for him to run from that position and now suddenly try to look like the tough guy uh, on, on China. I think there are much more effective lines of approach for Biden on this campaign. Uh, I, I think you know it's fair for him to call for accountability and transparency, but tough on China, Joe Biden has not been uh, over the years. And so to try to make him into something he's not, uh, I, I think that's going to be a challenge for the Biden team and the Biden campaign. Um, I think for President Trump, it continues to be one of several issues that I think one of several cards he could play in this election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's demonstrated that he is willing and, and he's able to, to deploy that argument about China, about being tough on China. He, he undoubtedly will continue to do so. Um, right. You know, I, I tend to believe that, you know, we'll see what happens with the economy. But if there's any sort of bounce back, that will, will present a, an opportunity for President Trump as well. But in terms of the, the China issue and Biden, um, he's cross-pressured in a number of different ways. One, we've talked about his own past. But secondly, right. he also still gets pressure from the progressive left. Mm-hmm. And I do think this is one of those situations where the progressive left is going to be quite sensitive to anything Biden tries to do on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a rightful concern about the way in which this issue could spiral and hit um, the Asian American community in the U.S. I think that is a very yes. real concern. But right. but for Biden in particular, that is going to be an even more acute concern he's going to need to be aware of. So it's just, a, it's a tough issue for him to play right. effectively and well. Right. So it's easy to see, Lonnie, it's easy to see Trump giving a message as simple as, you know, Democrats believe in carrots, I believe in sticks. I went after them very hard on terrorists. I'm going after the WHO now. I don't stand for nonsense. But we have a question for Raymond, which ties into this. And that's the possibility of Biden trying to use the WHO against uh, Trump. And here's what Raymond asked. What are the serious arguments that President Trump has taken the wrong approach to the WHO? Are these arguments weak? In other words, could Biden make the case that Trump's approach to the WHO is off base? 
Yeah, and I think you've seen a lot of Biden surrogates and and progressives on um, you know on Twitter and elsewhere making the argument, which is uh, why does President Trump go after the WHO at a time when we need the WHO the most? It's a pandemic. Why would you? Right attack the organization that's trying to coordinate the response. And then the other thing I've heard is, you know, Trump's just trying to distract attention from whatever he's doing in the U.S. Um, right. That's a lazy argument in my mind because it fails to address on its face the challenges with the WHO. Mm-hmm. And if you presume that all this is a, is a distraction, then what you're arguing essentially is the WHO has done things uh, perfectly well. And I just don't think that that's the case. I think there is a very real and very legitimate set of complaints that we have with the WHO, which leads to the second order question, which is, well, why, why would you care about it now versus right. later? And that's a fair question. I just think that there is reason why we need to be addressing the issue now. And that is that if you believe the WHO will be an ongoing voice during this pandemic. And there's no question they will be. They're putting out pronouncements every day. People are listening to them. They're coordinating. This is the role they're playing. So if we accept that they're going to be in the middle of this response, we also need to determine if that response that we're getting from them, if the information we're getting from them is really the information the world needs to hear for public health reasons or for political ones. And I don't think you get to the bottom of that by um, by having an internal investigation. I don't think you get to the bottom of it by simply taking their word for it. I think you get to the bottom of it by taking a serious look at what happened between Tedros and President Xi at a very early on stage in this pandemic. I think you look at it very carefully, the interactions between Chinese authorities and WHO authorities early. So you understand the origins of the pandemic, but you also understand how the WHO reacted and responded so we right. know how to weigh this information as we go forward. I think that is important. And no, I don't think it can wait. So I, I understand the arguments that some uh, who, who oppose the president are making. Uh, I just don't think that they have a lot of currency given the urgency of the situation we're dealing with and the need for us, if we're going to continue to trust in and believe in what the WHO is saying, we need to have comfort that the WHO is operating from a, from a position of true transparency and without a desire to benefit one member country or another. Right, so Lonnie, I have a theory as to why you're very passionate about this topic. One is that it involves a, a part of the world, the Pacific Rim, that you care about very deeply and have been studying for a long time. But secondly, we're leading to some very kind of basic Washington problems, if you will. One is getting an organization to admit fault. And in this age of politics, good luck getting anybody to admit that they made a mistake. But the second issue, Lonnie, would be transparency. What is, what is the first admit, uh, mistake a new administration makes Ours will be the most transparent administration in history. Everyone. And a year, then a year later, they've ducked subpoenas, they've denied yeah. document records, on it goes, it never holds up. Uh, and Richard asked a question about this. He asked, do you think the lack of transparency had something to do with the trade problems uh, the U.S. and China have? Now, this transparency is just kind of the common theme when it comes to dealing with China. Yeah, I mean, I think transparency, look, you, we all have to, to look at the situation with eyes wide open. And the, the Chinese Communist Party has never had a reputation for transparency. Uh, yeah. That is not a, a fundamental value on which, uh, on which the CCP seeks to govern China. It's just not, you know, if, if you think about it in the prioritization of values that are, that are, um, that are enforced in society, transparency isn't one of them. Freedom is, is another, it's another one that it's not. Uh, so I, I, I think that we just have to be a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how we deal with these situations. Uh, I, I think for too many years, there has been a dialogue around Washington and around many places 
uh, where where it basically holds that uh, you know we uh, we need to do everything we can to incorporate China into the international community, uh, mm-hmm. and I think for many years that probably was the right message. Um, now I think China is quite capable of taking care of itself, and it's quite capable of being a player in any organization it wants to be a player in. And for us to simply take them at their word, I think would be foolish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, for any society that's dealing in a situation like we're dealing with China to not recognize uh, that, a, that a country is going to promote its national interests, I, I think is foolish. And so uh, we, we just need to have eyes wide open going into this thing. And that's, by the way, why this WHO issue is so important, because we can't truly understand what's going on if we don't have a more fulsome discussion and investigation of, of what happened in, in this situation. We have only a couple of minutes left, Lonnie, so I want some final thoughts from you. Um, if the president is serious about pulling funding, if he doesn't get substantive reforms, and he's given the WHO a 30-day window to get its act together and start reforming, what do you think things are going to look like come, say, the third week of June? And just give us an idea of how you think this is going to play out for the rest of this year. Yeah, I, you know, I think that um, you're going to hear a ratcheting up of rhetoric. I think you will continue to see China, you know, maybe even give even more money than beyond the $2 billion they've just pledged to the WHO mm-hmm. uh, to demonstrate that they're taking a leadership position. I think the U.S. has to ask a, a very basic question, which is, um, if we're serious about pulling back from the WHO, if we're serious about not just funding, but involvement, if we're serious about taking that step back, um, right. what's the alternative going to look like? Uh, is it going to be an organization that we set up separate and apart from the WHO? Is it going to be an existing organization that we basically bolt some mandates onto such that it can replicate what the WHO is doing? What are the countries that are come, going to come with us? Um, we haven't talked much about the fact that, that the U.S. is not alone, by the way, in, in believing that we need independent investigations. Um, Australia has been very strong on this issue. They have said repeatedly, uh, Prime Minister uh, Morrison has said repeatedly that we need to, to be more aggressive in investigating this independently. So there are other countries around the world who are like-minded that we could band together with. But I just think we need to get a clear sense of um, at what point are we going to start to walk away versus saying we're just using this as a short-term threat. Um, if we really want fundamental reform and we actually get that reform, then that might mean we need to commit to doing more at the WHO, not less. But I think this is a period of time when, when we're trying to figure out exactly what the WHO is willing to do and just how beholden to China it really is. And I think those are very important questions that we need answers to. Um, but the alternative is something that we can't just leave floating out there. We do need to have an eye toward what will come next, because there are these public health questions that go right. beyond national borders. Uh, right. There is reason to have a multinational, multilateral organization that seeks to deal with these questions. I think the fundamental issue is, for us, is it going to be the WHO or is it going to be somewhere else? Right. And final question, Lon, he, um, are you an optimist or a pessimist here? Because the the history of the past few decades of dealing with, say, the UN or other international bodies, there's a lot of banging ahead against the wall. Yeah, well, with Tedros at the helm, I'm, I'm relatively pessimistic, which is why I think leadership change is important. I think for us mm-hmm. to signal that leadership change, for us to, to actively be involved in ousting Tedros, uh, you know, if not before his term is up, certainly when his term is up, uh, I think those are important factors for us to pay attention to. Uh, in the short run, I'm pessimistic. In the longer run, I think we'll get it right. I think whether it's within the WHO and a reform structure, 
uh, or, or in something separate from the WHO, I have confidence that we're going to be able to get this one right because too much depends on it, Bill. Uh, these are not just issues of politics. These are issues that affect human lives. Uh, and for that reason, our attention to this matter is greatly needed and, and I think sorely appreciated by, uh, by many countries around the world. Okay, Lonnie Chen, I enjoyed the conversation. Hey, we're approaching noon. Go fix your kid's lunch. Thank you. Okay. Our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Tuesday, May the 26th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Again, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Our guest will be Elizabeth Economy, who will be talking about COVID-19 and China. Liz Economy is a distinguished visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution. She's an acclaimed author and a recognized expert on Chinese domestic and foreign policy. And she was honored by Politico magazine as one of, quote, the 10 names that matter on China policy. A recently released book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State, analyzes the contradictory nature of reform under China's head of state. And if you get busy today and go to Amazon, you can probably read it by the time she is on Tuesday. A reminder, you can join Tuesday's briefing by clicking on the same link you access today. Uh, our conversation, by the way, I think I mentioned at some point during this talk that we have a, a website where you can find Lon He Chen's other work. That's hoover.org. Uh, but that's not our only presence on the internet. We also have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. Our Twitter handle is at hooverinst. That is at hoover, I-N-S-T. So that's it for today for this virtual policy briefing. On behalf of Lon He Chen and my fellow colleagues here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you a safe and rewarding Memorial Day weekend. And I'm going to ask you a favor. At some point during the weekend, take a moment and reflect on the meaning of Memorial Day. It's not Veterans Day. It's Memorial Day. It's meant to commemorate those people who gave their lives, sacrificed their lives for the freedom that we take for granted sometimes, freedom that still exists even in these quarantine times. So stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll keep doing our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. <laughs>